Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week, I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, September 23rd, 2013. During this week in history, in 1994, the NBC sitcom Friends debuted on television. The show featured six relatively unknown actors, but went on to become a huge hit lasting 10 seasons. Dude, I watched it, and it was the week I met my wife. Cowboys and Engines is a steampunk western. It's sort of like your old spaghetti western. Guy comes into town and things happen around him and he kind of gets dragged into it and has to save the day. This movie is a swashbuckling. Action packed. Excitement filled. Love story. Adventure ride. It seems like an adventure. Brian, right? Uh, Brent. Brent. Okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha. I'd have never gotten that one. I'd have never gotten that one. No one ever does. It's not a problem. (laughs) Cowboys and Engines. Yes, sir. Tricky title, man. You know, I was trying to find something that was sort of cute and sort of indicative of what it actually is. Sort of took it on faith that hopefully nobody would be offended by it and nobody has particularly complained. I think you're right at the line, you know? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I think you're right at the line where you still kind of remember as a kid cowboys and engines, but it's, it's engines, so... Right. Would you like to tell me a little bit about the film for those who don't know? Right now, it's just a short that we financed on Kickstarter. It's a steampunk western. And for people who aren't familiar with steampunk, what that essentially is, it's taking technology and putting it in an anachronistic setting. So our movie is set in 1876, but actually has technology that didn't exist in that time, but constructed in such a way so that it's believable that it would have actually happened. And the movie stars Richard Hatch from Battlestar Galactica, Walter Koenig from Star Trek, Libby Letlow, who is getting back into acting. She did a bunch of child acting work. Um, Malcolm McDowell, who people will know from Clockwork Orange and mm-hmm. Time After Time and The Mentalist, things like that. Everybody knows I'm a big Star Trek fan, so it helped build my life, actually. I know he probably doesn't care. You know, because they've moved on. <laughs> <laughs> Walter's not, he's not bitter about it. He's not, Right. he understands that if it were not for Star Trek, that probably no one would know his name. And, you know, he doesn't care if you want to talk to him about Star Trek, if you want to reference Star Trek, he's fine with all of that. He has no illusions about that. Right. I just remember that William Shatner bit when he was on Saturday Night Live and he was like, what are you guys all losers? Get on with your lives. And I was like, I was like, that's such a low blow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the one with the move out of your parents' basement skit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, of course, everybody knows I'm a big fan of um, Or if you don't know, Battlestar Galactica, the original and um, whatever. So, yeah, Richard Hatch as Apollo, you know, it's totally cool. He is the sweetest, nicest guy in the world. He is so easy to work with, and he's so invested in whatever he's working on. He's one of those people that I wish I could have him in everything forever. He's just unbelievable. How'd you get everybody for a film short, though? Walter, actually, his manager submitted him when we originally sent out our breakdown in the casting. And then Richard Hatch, I have been friends with his manager for about 15 years. And then Malcolm McDowell is 
uh, a friend of a friend is his manager. That sounds like the classic phrase in Hollywood, a friend of a friend. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's how you get these things done, you know. And you guys are two-time Kickstarter people. You you did the first round, I guess, for pre-production. Well, to get the whole production on the road, you, you came to Kickstarter, and that was looked like a whopping success. It was. It was great. And now you're back for the, what did you call it on the Kickstarter page? The expanded version. Expanded version. And what that is about is we originally decided we were going to make the short. We were going to put it out there and see if anything happened with it. And if it did, great. And if not, you know, the point was to make something that we all cared about. Maybe somebody would come to us and say, you know, let's do this as a feature. Let's look at this as a series, something like that. Mm -hmm. And that all happened a lot more quickly than we ever intended. Just from releasing the trailer that we cut for Comic-Con, we've been approached by different people from mainstream who want to look at it as either a series or look at financing it as a feature. So what we want to do is actually there are three scenes that we had to cut for budgetary reasons that we would like to now shoot to include in this promo package, this pitch package to try and take it to the next level. And that's what the second Kickstarter is for. I really like the Kickstarter trailer, man. It's way cool. And it's hard for me to say anything negative about your movie because of the people you have in it anyway. So you tied <laughs> my hands. Well, nobody's going to take it personally, you know. It's, <laughs> I'm fairly happy with that trailer. It was rushed. We didn't. Well, we, we actually, well, it wasn't so much that as it was that we didn't intend on screening anything that early. And when Richard got his panel at Comic-Con and then when they came to us and said, if Richard's going to show the trailer at the Galactica panel, then we want to show it at the Masquerade. You know, and then I was invited to do this Kickstarter panel. So suddenly we had to have a trailer and none of our effects work was done at that time. <laughs> so suddenly we got to put together a trailer. So yeah. there's a lot for that teaser. You know, it's not what I would have chosen if I had the finished footage to put a trailer together, there's a lot that's not there that you're just not seeing because we didn't have the time to put it together. For what it is, I think it's great. Is it anything revolutionary? No, it's a lot of talking no. heads because there's a lot of effects work that there wasn't time to finish. I know, but some people say when you don't have all the special effects, it leads you to maybe emphasize more on the acting or it leads you to emphasize a much richer story. Right. And that's what sci-fi is about. I mean, yes, I love the special effects and you can have special effects now beyond what I would say your imagination can even think of at times. But yes. your trailer is steampunk and it, it didn't have to have that, you know? I'm very, very, very character driven anyway. And one of my favorite right. scenes is simply Richard and Walter sitting around a campfire talking. Right. And all that is is you getting the backstory of Walter's character and why he's sort of a broken man. And that has nothing to do with running and chasing and gunfights and all of that crap. It's mm -hmm. strictly a great little character. But that, again, that's not something that, you know, fits in a trailer. There's one shot of Walter in the trailer. And it's because <laughs> it's because what Walter's character does in the movie, he's not the guy who's doing all of the running and the, the shooting and the stuff that people want to see in a trailer. So true. I had to send Walter a little apology when the trailer went up. And like, geez, you know, I know you really wanted to see this. You're only in one shot. Like, well, I expected that. <laughs> I've seen so many people come to Kickstarter and they shoot film shorts. And I never 
I didn't know what a film short was worth. How can you make any money off of it? How could it be viable? But you're telling me a story basically where you present it at different, you know, quasi-industry functions. Sure. And then those that be decide if they would like to take your project further. So it yeah. could potentially be commercially viable for you. In a sense, the short itself will never make money. Right. We knew that going in. But the way things work in Hollywood now, no one reads anything. It can right. be a paragraph and they're not going to read it. They'll tell you that they read it. They'll have it sitting on their desk. They'll have an assistant read it. No one reads anything. So one of the ways that things get done now is people put together a spec trailer. They do a short, they do a scene from the movie. They do something as a proof of concept to try and take to producers and take to studios and explain to them, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I want to do. Since no one reads anything, I'm lucky that you even spoke to me at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm different. I read everything. <laughs> and, oh. But you no, know, the studio heads, the people who make decisions, they just, they don't read. They don't read. They don't read anything. That's why none of my treatments are making it through. No one reads treatments. <laughs> They'll take them. And they'll hand them off to somebody, but then they get coverage done and then they don't read the coverage. Then the coverage sits. So gotcha. it's really bad. <laughs> For anyone out there who loves steampunk, or if you don't think you know what steampunk is, check out the trailer on Kickstarter, uh, Cowboys and Engines, like a rocket engine. And it's way cool. It has some special effects in it. Maybe not the finished product yet. But you'll see all the potential written all over it. And it may be in a theater or TV station near you soon. So please check it out. Bren, thank you very much for, for reading that email and giving me the time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm Jason Karachi, and I'm a game designer and educator. I'm Jen Karachi, and I get around as an artist and children's book illustrator. We're brother-sister, we're a team, and we created Lords of Thieves. It's a new card game for two to five players. We create and control a turn of the 20th century noble family and their... I know that it is nothing like old maids, but just seeing the pictures and stuff, it kind of reminded me of old maids. So tell me how I'm wrong. How is this game <laughs> different? How do I have the the story wrong somehow. Well, you know, I think it looks a little bit like an old-fashioned game, and I think that the art is different than a lot of the games you see out on the market. I think that that's true. Right. But, you know, this game is really about building a family, and it's about kind of building generations of a family and hiring servants and then kind of taking down rival families that you're playing against with, you know, gossip and using servants to kind of, you know, cause havoc and mayhem for other families. I just think, yeah, Lords and Ladies is more about strategy versus Old Maid, where you're just trying to screw somebody over with an old lady. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> so it's less like Old Maids and more like Dynasty? Sure, yeah. Like Dynasty, like Downton Abbey. Like, I mean, you know, it's kind of inspired by, you know, what we call period dramas. But, you know, you can think of any kind of melodrama, whether it be kind of soap operas or other things where, you know, it's about the personal relationships which are creating the you know, the conflict versus bullets and guns and zombies and aliens. And there's nothing wrong with all those things. Those things are great as well. But I think we wanted to create a game that, you know, dealt with 
interpersonal relations and family relations versus kind of external forces like, you know, aliens coming down and attacking a planet. Yeah, and I think what I enjoy most about playing the game myself is that there's a real storytelling aspect to the game. I know that when I play, I get attached to all the different family members and I have an idea of like their personalities. And I've seen that definitely evolve with other people that I've played with as well. One of the mechanics we have in the game is that when you first start the game, you name your lords and your ladies. And so as you have children, you also name them as well. So you're kind of like putting yourself into the game as well. Well, I did not find your game. There's a Kickstarter backer who saw me in the comment section, and he told me about your game. So I, I didn't even know it existed. And when I clicked on the page, you know, to check it out, your game did look different than pretty much almost all of the card games that I saw on Kickstarter. And so I thought that was totally cool, man. And We've had a lot of nice outreach from people. I think people from within, people who play games, and also people from outside of the gamer community who are kind of really interested about the game. Part of that comes from the art style, and part of that comes from the subject matter about the game. But, you know, Jen, not to toot my sister's horn, but, you know, she's a, <laughs> she's a well-known illustrator, and she's, you know, put out a lot of different children's books. And Why haven't I heard of her? Uh, have you heard of Little P, maybe, or Little Oink, or Little Owl? Mm-hmm. Hoot, hoot, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's all right. It's yeah. all right. I, I'm 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 not that big in the children's world. I just was trying to give you a hard time. I'm sure oh, no. you, I'm sure she's great in her own right. I'm sure you're great in your own right and all that. I just, you know I I had to be contrarian. That's all. Oh no yeah. worries. Yeah, but I think that that's one of the things that we're getting people from the illustrator world kind of coming in and looking at the game and being excited about playing a game with beautiful illustrations and hopefully a kind of a unique topic. Like along with the fact that the kind of artwork I do is definitely different than a lot of the gaming artwork that already exists. We also have several guest artists helping us make cards as well as one of the expansion packs. And I think that that will help to further diversify the kind of artwork that goes into games that are made. I'm excited about that aspect of it. In my opinion, you're a great artist and all. Thank you. Even though I haven't heard of your books or anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. They're, they're, they are for children. But that's yeah. okay. That's okay. Yeah. yeah, I'll have to get one for one of my children or something like that. Yeah. Nice. Mechanics. All right, people talk about games and mechanics. So tell us how this game works. If I'm interested in playing this game, I want to back you guys on Kickstarter. How does it work in Synopsis? Every turn, you get to take basically two actions. And your first action, you can either decide to take gold or you can decide to take gossip cards. So gossip cards are cards that you can play against other players to spread rumors. And then as your second turn action, you can either hire a servant and they give you kind of power-ups you can marry one of the available suitors that are out there. You can roll to have a children if you have a married couple, or you can take an additional goal. So the game is kind of structured in this round structure where during the course of a round, everybody takes one turn. And over the course of the rounds, you're, you're gaining status points, you're losing status points as people are playing gossip against you. And the game ends when the first person ends a round with 18 status points. So you're trying to kind of raise this, you know, the family status over the course of the game. This game sounds like it could be pretty ruthless to me. It gets ruthless sometimes, and, and definitely like each time I've played it, it's been extremely different how people use gossip or don't use gossip. Like, it is pretty interesting to watch how different people play the game. Would you like to thank your backers? Would you like to complain about them? They're giving you too much money, not enough money, beg no, for a stretch goal, something? It's amazing just how heartwarming and, and lovely people are. And when people have questions, it's because they're passionate about the game and they're kind of into it and they want to know more. And so for me, it's been a really great week. 
I felt really blessed and really lucky by But it can't be that rosy. They're gossiping about you on Kickstarter. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, both Jason and I think come from a background too where like we're really community oriented and we'd like right. I have a really tight group of friends where I live up in Providence. I know Jason has his own group and you know, they definitely, you know, cross paths and cross circles and I think that Kickstarter is such a it's another great community to be a part of. For anyone out there who's looking for a game that I say is not your run of the mill game. Go to kickstarter.com and check out Lords and Ladies. It's a game of legacy, gossip, and intrigue, they say. And you know how sometimes things can get kind of down and dirty, especially when you're infighting or if you're trying to build a family and there are other families trying to build their families at the same time. Jason and Jen, Jen and Jason, great team working together. Hopefully you guys can stop your fighting long enough <laughs> to bring this product to fruition. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Awesome, Thank thanks. You. A couple of years ago, on a trip to Washington, D.C. for a writer's workshop, I visited Ford's Theater, where President Lincoln was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. It was an incredible and moving step into history and was one of the highlights of my visit to the nation's capital. When I came home, I regaled my children, then eight and nine years old, with stories of my travels, and my daughter, Scout was beyond fascinated with the story of Lincoln's assassination. Hello, Brian. DJ Grandpa here. Uh, hello. How are you doing? I am splendid. How about yourself? Hey, that's a crazy book that you have there, man. And you're calling it a children's book. Yeah. <laughs> I just showed it to my 10-year-old daughter. I think she's 10. I don't know. Anyway, she was like, man, that's a crazy book, man. But, but I like the way you pitched it in the video, man. You'll like it, everybody else will like it, and it's just a great book, you know. And I was like, it was like you totally convinced yourself as well as everybody else who was listening to the video, and I thought that was great marketing, man. I really went out of my way to make it accessible and make it so that people wouldn't necessarily be afraid to hand it to their kids, but they'd also want to read it themselves. Right. I had so many people go like, oh, I don't know, it's about presidential assassinations, how gory is it? And it's like... Not gory. We mentioned that that kind of stuff happened, but don't, like, show it. Right. But the majority of the stories are actually really funny. You know, off the bat, I was like, presidential assassinations. I'm thinking it must be gory. It must be too much for children. How could he do something? What's wrong with, what's wrong with Scout? <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> well, when I was a kid, I was really interested in history. And I couldn't find anything when I was a kid that really leveled with me what history was. And I think kids are used to being played down to or talked down to or condescended to a little bit, but they're just as interested in what actually happened as we are. And when I came home from my trip to Washington and was telling my daughter about it, she was just like, it struck her in a way that I don't think she'd ever considered before. So she was really interested in getting the information. And I was just looking for a history book that she could read that would go through that. And we didn't find one. And I was like, well, maybe I'll write one. And I started researching, but it wasn't until I found the story about Andrew Jackson's assassination attempt that I knew I could actually do it as a kid's book. How old is Scout? Scout is now 10. And she was about eight when we started. What's the Jackson story? Andrew Jackson was the first president who had an assassination attempt on his life. And it was a guy who was a house painter in Washington, D.C., who went crazy from the paint fumes. And he thought he was the king of England. 
and that he could only ascend to the throne if the American government paid him some fantastical sum of money that they owed him. And the only thing stopping him from getting that money was Andrew Jackson. So he goes out and he buys a pair of Derringer pistols and starts stalking Jackson and finds him coming out of a funeral at the Capitol Rotunda and leaps out of the bushes or what have you and goes to shoot him. But his gun misfires, so he pulls out his other pistol, and it misfires too. So Jackson starts hitting him with his cane, chasing him around until Davy Crockett can subdue him. Wow. It's been so long since I've read history, I'm thinking Davy Crockett isn't even a real guy, but he is a real guy. Yeah, he was at the time a congressman from Tennessee. You know, when I read that he was the one who, like, helped subdue the guy and, and helped take care of that, like, just telling adults that story, you know, they almost don't want to believe you. It's like, you, you mean Davy Crockett helped foil the first presidential assassination or would the presidential assassination? That's crazy. And what did they have in paint back then? I know it was bad in the 70s, but back then it must have been, man, it must have, I don't know. That's not the only story like that either. Like Theodore Roosevelt, the attempted assassination against him was just as amazing. You know, it's full of stories like that where he was running for his third term in office. He wouldn't win it, but he was giving a speech in Wisconsin and he was leaving dinner and this guy who thought that running for a third term was like the worst thing a person can do, decided he was going to shoot Roosevelt. And he shows up and he shoots Roosevelt in the chest on his way to his car, on his way to the speech. And the bullet goes through his speech, part of his glasses case, and into his chest. All of the people around, you know, they subdue the guy, and Roosevelt is bleeding out of his chest. And his people are saying, sir, we've got to take you to the hospital. And he's like, no, I'm okay. It didn't go in that far. I'll live. I need to give this speech. So he insists on going to the venue where he was going to give the speech and gets up on stage and, you know, he hushes the crowd and says, I don't think you guys understand this, but I've been shot. And it'll take more than one bullet to stop a bull moose. You know, I don't know how loud I'm going to be, but I'm going to give you a very short speech because you guys came here to see me and, and that's what I'm going to do. And he ended up speaking for 90 minutes bleeding out of his chest. So finally, they take him to the hospital, and they're like, sir, we'd like to take the bullet out. And he's like, no, 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 that's how I got into the presidency the first time. William McKinley was shot and assassinated, and he died from the bacteria because they kept trying to pull the bullet out and made the wound worse and infected it. So he said, no, you're not taking the bullet out. Just sew me up. I'll be good. And so he lived for the rest of his life with that bullet in his chest. Ask not what you can do for your country. That's what I'm thinking. These stories are really fascinating, and most of them don't end in tragedy. They're the kind of things that would get any kid interested in history. And it kind of proved, you know, how much larger than life people were back then. Brian. Yeah. They're the f most fascinating stories in the world. I didn't know I'd be calling you for a history lesson. I thought I was calling to complain or give you a hard time or something, but... That's what the book's about, so... I've written pretty lengthy chapters that put everything in historical context and tell the story. And Erin Kubinek, who's the artist, yeah. she's done some really fantastic portraits and illustrations of everything. It's a little on the cartooning side. And it actually sounds like you had a lot of fun doing this, researching and putting it together. I had lots of fun doing it. Did Scout help any? She mainly kind of looked at pictures and... And Drew said she was really obsessed with the the, the Lincoln story and 
if nothing else, drew lots and lots and lots of pictures that I'd found from that. She drew them in her own style and inspired me to keep going. For anyone out there, if you're a history buff, if you love all things, well, I was about to say assassination, but that wouldn't be positive. But but if, if you're into that cloak and dagger sort of thing, I think this could be the book for you. Children's Illustrated History of Presidential Assassination. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, my name is Ola, and I'm in a band from Seattle called Hawkins We make analog-style experimental pop music. This is Johnny. He plays most of the instruments and does all you the recording. You guys waiting for me? Okay, yeah, sorry. We're good to go. Yeah, but my name is Ola. I don't know how you guys sound, except for some recordings and stuff. It could have been all studio magic. Yeah, I use a lot of auto-tune on my voice. <laughs> it's industry-wide, industry-wide. You know, I have a stereotype, and... My stereotype is only the coolest bands come from Seattle. That could be true. I'm believing it's true, man. I mean, since ever I was a kid or in college, whatever, it was just always Seattle with the coolest bands, man. And how can you guys have that moniker for like, I mean, it's been at least 30 years, man. You guys just keep <laughs> coming up with the with the hits, man. And what was up with that drug-induced video on Kickstarter? Whose idea was that? Uh, <laughs> that was my idea. I think some of my drug use in high school uh, came back and haunted me on that one. Not Ola, huh? She just went along with me. It's, it's her fault for letting me do it, but... Uh, she was definitely a willful participant. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she, I mean, I, she checks me on that stuff. She makes sure that my ideas aren't too dumb. It wasn't dumb. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> it was just weirdo, man. Freakish, even. The guy who helped us do the video, he was like, is this going to work, the whole voice swapping thing and all that? And I was like, yeah, it'll probably be fine. It was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> the voice swapping thing. Now it was freakish to hear her voice coming out of your mouth, but but I mean it was still ingenious. Matter of fact, this is like the second week in a row, man. You guys get a DJ Grandpa Kickstarter video award. <laughs> was that great but I mean it's still freakish so it's not like you guys could go mainstream on the video <laughs> yeah I know we're not gonna go mainstream yet but uh, maybe the next Kickstarter will be to make some more Kickstarter videos or something. Yeah. no but you guys influence the mainstream that's what's important that's what I'm about I'm not about necessarily pop or the mainstream even if I play it I'm about influencing the mainstream giving them something else yeah. to look at well, I'd say we're influenced by the mainstream, too. Definitely. Well, that, too. Yeah, it goes both yeah, ways. Yeah. But they yeah. need us. They need us. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. definitely. Because if you left it up to them, they'd have the same six songs or ten songs playing all day long every day. So. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. You're out there for a reason. You're still embracing the public in some sort of way or fashion if you're out there doing all of this. So, I mean, what are your dreams? How big do you want to be? I think I just want to keep making music, but I also want to become a better performer I think is my main kind of goal right now especially with music is just to to get better at performing to be better at right. presenting our music you know live and that sort of thing I mean do you suck now I kind of suck yeah I would say I kind of suck <laughs> oh that's sad man no no I don't suck okay I shouldn't say that I think it's more like a 
I mean, if you do, it's okay. It's okay to be modest or honest. You know, I mean, dude, there have been <laughs> there have been bands back in the day that totally sucked. They couldn't play their instruments. They couldn't do anything. But by the time they went on the road and performed, and night after night after a while, they became good. So there's hope for you guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that you know we're pretty hard on ourselves with that kind yeah. of thing, and uh, we tend to focus on recordings a lot. Right. So we might get rusty while we're in the studio. Like we're going to be playing our first show in almost two years wow. coming up. But we know our stuff. I mean, we've been doing this for a while. And yeah. and uh, what we would consider sucking or whatever uh, maybe <laughs> is uh, we might be being a little hard on ourselves because when we go to shows, we're like, how, how are these people on stage right now? I mean, it's okay to be a loser band. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know it's derogatory, but I don't mean it in a derogatory. There's no malice involved. Right, yeah. It's like me, DJ Grandpa. Everything I start at, everything I do, I suck at it at the oh, beginning. Yeah. But I want to win more than I want to lose. So I keep doing it. Actually, going back to your original question, that kind of gets to what my answer would be, which is that the whole point of what Cock and Swan has always been, whether we planned it out or not, is to kind of show our work in progress. Like we're not necessarily interested in being really successful as much as being sustainable and being able to show people the new things that we've learned. Every record we've done has been kind of a new thing we've learned. Right. Like this one is kind of more about Ola coming out and doing her vocals and me kind of backing off instrumental wise. And uh, I mean, I think this record has probably like four times as many lyrics as any of our other records. Mm -hmm. I have as many lyrics as all of our other records combined. We find a couple of tricks and then we do that in a batch of songs and then, and yeah, and then we move on. What's your new record called? It's called uh, Secret Angles. All right, and how many records have you done total? You know, like EP, album, stuff like that. This is fourth album and then we did a couple of self-released EPs too. How long have you been together? Uh, just about 10 years. Okay, now, so I don't get the genre of your music wrong, or the style of your music wrong, how would you describe yourselves? You're the alternative to the alternative, whichever, I mean, what are you guys? I think we've kind of started to use the term, like, experimental pop music, or some people say, like, dream pop. I mean, I think usually people say dream pop, but I think maybe we're a little more, like, weird than a lot of other bands in that genre, but I think that's a pretty good label. We've seen the word goth bandied about more than we were expecting, right. but I think there might be some relation to that whole Austro witch house stuff that was going around for a little while, um, that kind of darker stuff. You mean the Wiccan I, I, type stuff? <laughs> yeah, I guess there's like some kind of weird parallel to the occulty, uh, darker pop music. Do you guys use like Ouija boards and... Actually, our little magic totem is, a, is an old psychology textbook from the 50s that I got from an abandoned house in high school. Oh, that's cool. And that's where we got our band name, and that's where all the, the symbols for the record came from, and like the name of the symbols, not the track titles proper. Initially, they were going to be just these symbol names, but we decided to take it easy on the DJs <laughs> that were going to be playing the music. The way we did the lyrics for this record was Ola would grab like a copy of The Stand or uh, some little novel by uh, Alan Watts or something and she would start mumbling words out of that. Right. And I'd go in the other room and I'd just listen and write down what I heard 
and then we'd pick whatever sounded cool or made sense. And then it actually ended up having a lot of uh, subconscious meaning. And I kept hearing things that I was thinking about, I guess, or something, so. That is an amazing process, because sometimes there's a song playing in the back. It could be like a song I can't stand, it could be whatever song. But if you right. like muffle your ears or something, mm -hmm. you hear like a totally different melody or, or chords and stuff, and, and it sounds like such an incredible song, but it's not the song that is actually playing. You could probably do a whole album like that. Yeah, oh, totally, yeah. I mean, that's that's a big thing for us is doing those kinds of things so that we don't have to feel responsible for what we're writing or performing. And then later we can go, yeah, yeah, we did do that, I guess, so we can take credit for it. But if it sucks or something, I guess it's kind of a safety blanket. Right, right. It's not like that um, Phil Collins thing, you know. Sure. Hit yeah. me in the shower. It was hit me when I was, and I woke up and I wrote it, da-da-da. Su-su-su-su-su-studio. Yeah, no. It means nothing. Yeah, none of that. Yeah, none of that for us. <laughs> All right, man. Well, you guys sound totally cool, man. And, and oh, you nice. sound totally creative, man. And like I said, I love Seattle, man, the music scene and all of that. You guys are just a creative period. And, and your band, man, I'm, I'm going to say you're going to be one of those that influence the mainstream. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's a totally acceptable path. You suck until greatness, man. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, suck until greatness. all that, yeah. Yeah, that's how I am, man. I suck until yeah. greatness, man. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay. With that. Yeah, yeah. Now, now we we haven't asked Ola. Is she okay with that, or is she just backseat driver again? I'm along for the ride. <laughs> I'm in it. <laughs> ride or die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Congratulations to both of you, and um, I hope everything works out for you. And I hope you guys keep following your dreams, and I hope your dreams turn out to come true. Thank you. And for anyone out there, go to. Go to kickstarter.com and type in. Now, it's not Cox Swan, right? Because it's, it's something no. else. What's, the, what's your Kickstarter? The name of the project is Release Secret Angles on Vinyl. It's for your band, Cox Swan, out of Seattle. Yeah, it's under Cock and Swan. Crazy name. <laughs> Johnny and Ola, thanks for man, giving me a chance to talk to you guys and, and, and just peer into your world, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for doing this with us. Bye, Ola. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> the galaxy is on the pinnacle of prosperity, but the tide is turning as more and more empires grow hungry for new territories. Alliances become hollow, diplomatic endeavors become sabotage, and war machines become essential. How's it going, Emil? Hi. <laughs> DJ well, Grandpa here. So, how are you today? Everything's horrible, man. After watching your trailer on Kickstarter, man. Whomever's doing that guau voice on there scared me into backing you, man. <laughs> yeah, it's my wife. Oh my gosh, that is one creepy trailer. Is she an actress? Uh, no, no, we, we just did a, um, a bit of um, voice changing. How do you pronounce the name of your gaming company? Sun Tzu Games. Sun Tzu Games, okay, yeah, Sun Tzu it's Games. It's the, the old legend uh, Sun Tzu from, you know, uh, one of the Chinese battle minds, you know, who made the arts of war. I've seen the movie. I work in Denmark. Right. I have an associate in London who can take care of you know the Kickstarter aspects of it. 
So I work in the Danish army in, in Denmark. You're in the army, for real? Yeah, yeah, I'm a lieutenant in the army. So tell me about this whole Danish army connection. I've lived and grown up in, in Denmark. I've been an entrepreneur for some time after I was done with my education. Uh, I'm a new media designer. Right. But then we hit the 2008 crisis where everything kind of just went down the drain. Yeah. Yeah. Then, then I looked for something else that also had to do with leadership. And then I, I found this education in the army where I could do some officer things. And then I could be promoted to lieutenant within uh, some years. So that, that seemed like a, a nice opportunity to get some hands-on on the leadership aspects. I live in Germany right now. Right. So I can be together with my wife, who's from uh, Belarus. Yeah, white Russia. So, uh, wow. So wow. You're all over the place, dude. <laughs> completely, yeah. Yeah. You got the Asian moniker for the games. You got the Denmark <laughs> military training school. You got the wife, Belarus. I mean, you yeah. the London connection. What don't you have, man? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I've also been working in the United States. Uh, <laughs> time, so I've, I've been... I've been around. <laughs> I don't really want to be bound into some place, you know. It's, it's right. so wonderful to be able to just travel and explore. You know you're starting to sound like a Kickstarter story again. You know, like part of your company is here, part of your life is there, part of your company is over there, part of your life is in another corner. Yeah. It's like these decentralized companies, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because since 2008, the world kind of works in a different way. And so you have to make different choices to, to be able to survive. And yeah. you're obviously doing that with all the nooks and crannies. You got people stashed all over the place, man. You really have to think in a different way these days because either you can be a local company or you can be a global company. And depending on what you want to do, it's very much the thing that will determine how you need to get your funding or how you need to make an everyday living you know do you want to just chew the fat or do you want to talk about your game a little bit basically i wanted this game burning suns to be a combination of several things like the feeling you get from watching a movie like star wars and all this the universe around it that really compels you and gets you into this epic uh, mode right and then combine it with something which is very tactical, interesting. Like I also say in my video, when you play a game of StarCraft or play some civilization or something like that, I want to combine these things into, into something that, is, um, that can be handled within a couple of hours. You know, like, like Star Wars, it doesn't take three or four hours to tell a cool story. It can be right. done in two hours. Right. So that's my point with the game. And the game has many many new or like refined mechanics right. that uh, makes it interesting all the way and, and makes the interaction between the players uh, very tactical interesting because every move matters without it being detrimental to you making a, a bad move but it matters it still matters uh, in the way that you you play against your opponents has your military training played any into this now i know that's a predictable question but i have to ask it i wasn't even completely sure how deep the tactical aspects of Burning Suns would be until right. I tried it. And, and that's, that's also the, one of the things about plants in the army is that they only, oh, yeah. they only plans until you meet the enemy and then suddenly <laughs> you have to act out and you have to do different things. You, know? you can only do a planning for so long and then when the first 
shot is fired, then you have to do something else. The best made plans, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's also how I wanted the game to be. Like, you can only plan this far ahead, and then from there on, you really have to uh, engage with things happening around you. Oh, I wanted to say that the graphics are totally incredible in it, man. A lot of you, you put a lot of money into the, the graphic content of this mm -hmm. game for, yeah. you know, for the trailer and stuff. It's way cool, man. That's been a very, very important thing. You know, if you have to convince people that this is a living and breathing world, you really have to make an effort uh, artwork-wise, you know. Now, since you're in the military and you're doing a war game and you love the strategy, are you a violent person? <laughs> no. <laughs> My friends would probably say I'm the most civil military man they've ever met. <laughs> uh, you're not a warmonger at all? <laughs> no. No, not at all. Well, when it comes to computer games, I love it. I love war. But whenever, you know, <laughs> it comes to real life, violence right. and war is always a, a second thing, you know. It must never be the primary thing. I really appreciate you coming on the show, man. Is there anything that I may have uh, not given you a chance to say that you might want to get out there about your game and your whole um, company? That's a big question. Um, <laughs> there are many The million-dollar question? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one thing is that even though the game seemed like it's just a thing I'm, I'm doing the uh, Kickstarter for the funding, I'm also doing it for the crowd. I mean, I want some people to playtest this even more. I've been playtesting maybe like hundreds uh, of games, but there are so many combinations and so many options in this game that I would never be able to fully playtest it myself. That's just not possible no matter how you put it. That all sounds pretty cool, man. You've been a totally pleasant person to talk to, even though you're a, even though you're a warmonger and all, man. <laughs> yeah. It's totally pleasant. We didn't have to throw down the gauntlet, you know, choose sides and all. No, no, Denmark is way too small to invade anything, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard it put that way, but now I understand. <laughs> now I understand. And for anyone out there who knew that Denmark was too small to invade another country, or maybe if you didn't and you just found that out, go to kickstarter.com and check out Burning Suns. Cool title and a very good trailer, but I'm going to tell you, it is very spooky at the beginning. His wife does an excellent job of voice. She needs more voiceover work, by the way, and she needs to be nominated for a Kickstarter video voiceover award. That's all I really have to say. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll post links for Emil's project. Dude, I just want to say thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I want to invite you to support the first 10 issues of Cartosia Tales, an all-ages fantasy comic drawn by a bunch of really sharp, top-notch indie cartoonists. All the stories in the book are set in the same world, which we're developing or inventing as we tell the stories. How long have you Cartosia been working on this story? World, so well, this anthology, how long has this been in the making, this idea? Well, I had the idea almost a year ago, and I started recruiting a group of core contributors that would be in every issue. And it took me a few months to bring everybody together. Around uh, the beginning of January of this year, we were all assembled and I started trying to line up guest stars and also started figuring out things about the world. We finally started drawing the book around the beginning of the summer. 
and we published the first issue just a couple of weeks before the Kickstarter went live. We have a pretty cool way of sharing the process of invention. Each issue has stories by a set of seven core contributors plus two guest stars. And at the beginning of the work on each issue, each of us is assigned more or less at random to a new sector of the world map. And then each issue has a couple of guest stars in it who tell one story and then you know, that's the extent of their involvement with the project. Would you like to drop any names? You know, I hear Americans are famous for that name dropping, so. Our first issue has John Lewis and Dylan Horrocks, both of whom are really big names in like the mid-90s boom in indie comics. Uh, the second issue has James Kachalka, who's done a whole lot of kids' comics, and a guy named Adam Coford, who does a lot of drawing for people as varied as like The Daily Show and Boing Boing and Nidorama, things like that. He's also got an online webcomic. We're going to have a story before the thing is over by Meredith Gran, who did one of the Adventure Time comic books and has an right. online comic. We've also got Kelly Sue DeConnick and Ming Doyle collaborating on a story for us. They're going to be names that'd be familiar to people who read superhero comics. On your trail on Kickstarter, you still spoke of how your comic is different somehow. I'd say it's different from your standard newsstand comic in a lot of different ways. Like, you're going to see a much wider variety of drawing styles in Cartosia Tales than you do in standard newsstand comics or in mainstream comics, because uh, everybody's kind of doing idiosyncratic work. Also, the way that the book is put together has a kind of funny hook. At the beginning of work on each issue, we divide the map up into nine sectors, the map of the world, right. and get assigned at random to a sector. So when you start work on a given issue of the comic, you don't know which characters you're going to be able to draw until the assignment goes out. The other thing about it that I guess is weird is just that it's kid-friendly. I mean, there's so little that's being done in comics today that's really designed for all ages. And I really think that's important. I want there to be parts of my comics collection that I don't have to hide from my kid right. and that I can share with them, you know, that I can, we can sit together and read it together. My children, they, they say stuff like, there was nothing good created after the 1980s. And, you know, they're still children. But, you know, it could have been like yesterday. Are talking about music or about comics? Or they're talking or about movies, television, all of that stuff. I mean, they still listen to modern music. But, I mean, it's country music. It's whatever. It's stuff like that. But most of that other stuff, television, movies, they're like, nah. You know, I stopped watching MacGyver when it got to 1990, <laughs> you know, but they're, they're used to DVDs and, and streaming and all of that stuff, you know, so they have a totally different world, man. And I don't know if it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. So hearing about your comics sounds refreshing, you know, that it may not be as harsh as most of the titles that I that I see on the bookshelves these days. Yeah, I mean, we try to have stories that have real dramatic stakes. There's a character in the first issue who may wind up being eaten by a plant at the end of her story, and it's sort of left as a, a cliffhanger. I've, a couple of people who've reviewed the book have said that it ends on a kind of down note because of that. I actually don't think she's going to get eaten. I think she's going to save herself, but we won't see that until the third issue. She's not coming back in the second issue until, you know. Right. So there's no on-screen violence, there's no sort of sexual leering, there's no swear words. And those are things that are pretty common, I think, in a lot of mainstream comics now, weirdly common. I think the thing that gets me is that 
And my children keep saying, why all the superheroes got to be bad, you know? Yeah. You know, why can't they be the last Boy Scout, you know? Why can't they be the shining examples for this, that, and the third? And I can't believe that they're the only ones that want to see these type of role models, you know? On the flip side, sometimes I hear people who say they won't read a story if it's trying to teach them a lesson or a moral or a goal or something. In a way, I think we're trying to set stories somewhere in between those two extremes. I mean, I don't think of any of the characters in Cartosia Tales as role models, but I think they're easy to identify with. You can read that book and see kids who are struggling to figure out their place in the world, kids who are trying to figure out how, you know, where they belong. There's a couple of stories that are about that. Or kids who are trying to, kids who are trying to to get away from other people's expectations of them. That's another big theme that runs through the book. And there will be occasions, I think, for these characters to rise to heroic acts. I can right. tell some bad plots coming up that <laughs> require them to, to do big things, you know. But I think right now, the, the, the reasons why you would get invested in one of these characters have less to do with their heroism and more to do with the fact that they're facing struggles you can recognize. I love the trailer, actually, for Cartosa <laughs> Tales. I just watched it for the first time today. You know, I took the story because my editor was like, you know, producer was like, dude, you know, I like this story. So I was like, okay, okay. So today, this morning, right before I called you, it was the first time I've seen your trailer. And I, I really liked it, man. I mean, I like the way you pushed it about the difference, the difference, the weird, the weird, you know, out of mm -hmm. the norm, maybe. The pictures are totally beautiful. You guys seem to have like a happy family there. You know, everybody who came <laughs> on after you, you know, they turned around like, hey, you know, so it was. Well, yeah, it's, it's true. We, we really enjoy working together. It's kind of neat. None of the people who are involved in this project have worked together before. I mean, with the exception of me and my buddy Mike, who always work together and sort of count as one cartoonist instead of two people. We haven't collaborated together before, but I hunted these people up with the idea that their imaginations and their personalities would be compatible. And it really has turned out that way. And it's been a lot of fun to work with them, you know. And I think that we all feel that way, that each of us is bringing things to the mix that the other ones don't have. And so when we get, we get ready to bring an issue out, we're all looking at each other's work and saying, oh, my God, that's so amazing. <laughs> and when we're thinking about what we're going to do for this comic, we're constantly saying, I got to step my game up because I'm collaborating with Sean Chang and Lucy Bellwood and they can draw circles around me. Or I really got to step my game up because these two guys are really great writers, you know, and then we're all seeing the things that we feel we could do better and trying to raise up to the level of the, the people that we're working with. It's really terrific. See, people, you can still have a business and everyone get along and still be cutthroat and ruthless and competitive like these guys are. Nothing wrong with a little healthy competition. <laughs> I don't even know if I would call it competition. I feel like we're, <laughs> we're inspiring each other. I, mean, I know, but I'm trying to sell this. I'm trying to tell a story for you. <laughs> Which one do you want? <laughs> <laughs> so go to kickstarter.com and type in Cartosia Tales. That's C-A-R-T-O-Z-I-A Tales. It's for the first 10 issues, I believe. It'll be 400 pages of comics. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll provide, you know, the links so you can find it if you can't find it, basically. Isaac, thank you very much for coming on the show and I wish you and your team the best. Thanks for having me. Kickstarter.
Captain's Log Entry 7790.2 We have crash landed on Tempest 3 due to an unexpected engine failure. The landing was rough, but we landed in one piece. Hello, Sean. DJ there Grandpa here. Is hull, this a good game? System. Oh, yeah. This is great, man. This is, uh... <laughs> if you like Defenders of the Realm, and if you like Arkham Horror, and, you know, those types of, uh... Right. In this one, you gotta work together a little more than a typical co-op. Right. You know, because you're part of a crew, right? We're a crashed spaceship that's landed on a planet, and we have to try to fix our ship or hold off these aliens until our rescue ship can come. So we got to work together, you know? That insidious cooperative word again. There have been a lot of these co-ops come out, and I know some people aren't fans. And The big knock I always get from folks is they say, hey, uh, with a co-op game, you know, I, I hear that uh, there's always the alpha male guy, right? The guy that says, okay, DJ, you go here, and Sean, you go here, and Richard, you go here. Right. And then the game isn't very fun. It's like he's playing the whole game. And what I tell people about this game is, you know, everybody's got their own little decks of cards and their own special powers and their own actions. And for one guy to keep track of what everybody's best moves is, it's, it's almost impossible. You know, you can get that. You can get that alpha male tell you, hey, Sean, you should go over here and fix that one shield. I can tell the alpha guy, well, why wouldn't I go over here to the ship and fix all the shields? Because that's my special power. And I tell you what, after a turn or two, that alpha male, he's just going to let you play your best turn because you know your character better than he does. Let's say over the past 10 years, you're independent, you're a game maker, then you go corporate, you're a game maker, and now you're independent again. What are your dreams now that you've seen all this? I mean, 10 years ago when you were independent, there was no Kickstarter. So what's the lay of the land now? What's different for you? What are you excited about besides the money stacking up? For me, it was never the money. When, when I got in this, when I made my first game, I just love games, you know? I was just into games. I wanted to play games. I've been playing games since I was six years old. You know, not Monopoly, Candyland, stuff like I was playing Thinking Man's Golf and Feudal and Chess and Axis and Allies, Redbox, D&D. Like, I've been playing games, you know? Right. When I made that first game, I just wanted to make a game for me that I thought was cool. Because, you know, I shopped it around to publishers and back then, right? Right. Nobody would take a chance on a new new designer or a new game, so I made my own. Now, which game is this? Because you, you were dropping a lot of games, and but no names. That one was called Terraforming, you know, and, it, and I learned a lot making that game. It was just a simple little card game with some wood cubes. But uh, at the end of the day, what I learned was, you know, this business is hard. If you're going to treat it for a business to make money, why don't I try it out? Why don't I put my best foot forward and pick one of them games that... I would want to work with a guy like Richard Lonnie's, and I would want to make a game with plastic minis and all kinds of cool things. And so that's, I went to Kickstarter and I crossed my fingers and said, man, I hope I don't look like an idiot. You got to take risks, right? And, and some people would say, you're crazy, Sean Brown, because <laughs> you left a company like Eagle Games, man, to just go out and do this all on your own. You're nuts. And uh, maybe I'm a little nuts, but, you know, like I said, it's never the money for me. It's always been the games and I believe in the games and I believe that, that the money will come to you if you make good products and you're good to people and you treat people right, you know? The coolest thing is, like, you've already done it all and, and you're just replicating it for yourself now on a different platform. Or it's on the same platform, sort of, kind of, but, but it's like your turn. Yeah, And exactly. that's what's incredible. You know, I don't look back at those early years where I worked my, my tail off. I don't look at that as like, oh, man, look what I lost. I look at it as... Now this time when it's for real, when it's for me, right. 
I look at it as like maybe I went to college and that was my PhD in making games. You know what I'm saying? No, that's true, man. You're going pro now. Well, not pro, but but <laughs> you're starting your own team, your own franchise. I can remember in the early days, DJ, I can remember we're out in Chicago setting up this warehouse and I'm calling for pallet racking, you know, to stack these things up in the air because we're out of floor space. And, you know, they're telling me it's $100 for this beam and $200 for this upright. You need two uprights and 20 beams, right? Right. And I'm sitting there going, holy smokes. And I call up a guy that I used to know that's a welder. And he says, oh, yeah, we're, we're gutting a warehouse. And we got this used pallet racking and I'm cutting it down. I'll sell them to you for $10 a beam and $25 an upright. <laughs> so what do I do? I go rent me a U-Haul truck and I drive up, you know, two hours up to Milwaukee. And I load up to where he is, and I buy these racks from him, and I, we just load them in by hand into a U-Haul truck. And I bring them back, and I racked our entire warehouse over a weekend all by myself. Called up a few friends to, hey, hey, give me a couple hands, you know, add me a couple hands. And all of a sudden, we got $10,000 worth of pallet racking in our warehouse for a couple thousand dollars. See, that's, that's ambition, drive, plus initiative. All of that wrapped in one. I mean, I've always heard people say it's that thinking outside of the box. Yeah. And I tell you... I did that in those early days because I'm like, man, I own part of this company. You know what I mean? Like, I want to make it grow and succeed and get bigger and bigger and better. And it did. And it's a bittersweet thing when you leave, right? Because I watched the company grow big, big, big. But it grew so big that I don't have any say anymore, you know? <laughs> and so that's the thing, right? So now, now I can leave and do my own thing. And uh, I can build it all over again as slow or as long as I need to, because now I know how, what it takes to build it, to make it right, you know? I just want to close by saying this has been a riveting conversation about one man's journey from small time to big time and then to start out all over again on Kickstarter with a new revolution in mind. Go to kickstarter.com and check out Alien Uprising. It's a rabble-rousing type of game about planetary insurrection and all of that and one crew's mission to survive while aliens are all around them. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll post links for Sean and his games by Mr. B Games. Dude, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's crib. Thanks to Jeffrey Banks, Bertram Zeke, and Aaron Levine, our assistant editors. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AF Rufus. Thank you.